0: Well, in case you hadn't heard the news, there's a presidential election this year. (laughs) We are now in campaign season. It seems like these days we're always in campaign season, but with the Iowa caucuses having happened this past week, it is official and the race is on. So whether it is the incumbent president trying to remain in office or one of his challengers trying to unseat him every candidate is now trying to convince us to vote for him or for her now for just a moment i want you to forget about your political preferences your political leanings and just think about this objectively think about the challenge that exists in trying to mount a a campaign for office think about what it takes To get a message out there in a way that people will hear you and respond in the way you want them to. Think of the challenges that that has to overcome. For one thing, people lead incredibly busy lives. We're rushing to and fro, trying to meet obligations and fulfill appointments and get things done. And as a result, our attention spans are very, very short. And if you are lucky, you might get 30 seconds of my attention to get your message across to me. And then to complicate things even further every day you and i are being bombarded by thousands if not tens of thousands of messages please with us everybody encouraging us to buy this or do that or endorse this cause or promote this issue or join this group everybody is soliciting us for something so in the midst of all of that noise And with all those shortened attention spans, a candidate for office has got to figure out how to pitch himself or herself to us in the clearest, shortest, and most succinct way. How do you make your case? What message are you going to lead with? What things are you going to emphasize? Out of all the things you could say, what are you going to focus on or what are you going to leave out? How are you going to grab my attention in the most effective way? Now, I'm trying to draw an analogy here, and like any analogy, this one breaks down, and let's start with that, because when we meet Jesus on the pages of the gospel, he's not running for office. Let's be very clear about that. He's not trying to win the popular vote for anything. And yet, Jesus does have a clear message that he's trying to get across. Unapologetically, Jesus has an agenda that he's trying to fulfill jesus is not just a guy randomly going around doing nice things and offering disconnected insightful abstractions about life everything jesus says and does is pointing in a particular direction and he's trying to solicit a particular kind of response from us Now, in today's reading that we'll come to in just a moment, we get our first exposure to the content of this message that Jesus is trying to deliver. We've kind of been warned that this was coming. In Matthew chapter 4, we are told that Jesus went around and began to preach. But we aren't really given any details about exactly what it was he preached. In Matthew 4, verse 17, we get a summary statement. All it says is this. Jesus went around preaching repentance because the kingdom of heaven was near. That's it. So far, that's all we know. But now, as we move into Matthew chapter 5, we get a more detailed record of Jesus' speech. If we wanted to put it in modern terms and stick with the analogy that we laid out a moment ago, this is Jesus' first stump speech that he's about to give. And it's a speech that stretches on for three chapters in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And collectively, these chapters are known together as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really hard to overstate their importance in the scriptures because these chapters represent the the single longest and most concentrated set of teachings we have straight from the lips of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. So if we want to know what Jesus was about, if we want to know what Jesus thought and taught, there's no better place to look than the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus is gonna go on to address a wide range of topics, morally and spiritually. But like any good preacher, Jesus knows that a good sermon needs a good introduction. An introduction does a couple of things. For one thing, it grabs the listener's attention. I know as a preacher that if I bore you in the first 30 seconds, I've lost you. And I can tell by your faces that I've already done that for some of you this morning. (laughs) you got to get my attention. you got to make me want to lean in and think that what I'm about to tell you is worth listening to. But the other thing that a good introduction does is to set the stage for everything else that's to come. A good intro ought to do more than interest you. It also ought to give you a clue as to where this overall message is going. And as we're going to see in just a moment, the introduction that Jesus gives to this sermon accomplishes both of those things. We'll unpack that for a little bit in in, in just a little bit. But but for now, I want to ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. These are the very first words that Jesus speaks to us. Of all the things that Jesus could have said, of all the things he could have emphasized, of all the things he could have led with, this is what he chooses to be the very first thing we hear from his lips. And so let's turn our attention to what is traditionally referred to as the beatitudes matthew 5 verses 1 through 12. now when jesus saw the crowds he went up on a mountainside and sat down his disciples came to him and he began to teach them he said blessed are the poor in spirit For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as I've already said, those words do two important things, and we want to unpack them this morning. First thing they do is grab our attention. If we weren't listening before, we are listening now, because with these brief words, Jesus challenges outright a prevailing assumption that would have underlined everybody's thought processes in that day. And it's a thought process that in many ways is still present with us today. So right out of the gate, the very first thing that Jesus says, the thing that grabs us is something that takes our expectations and turns them upside down. the second thing these words do is to lay the foundation for everything else that Jesus is going to say, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but basically throughout his ministry. He's laying a foundation that we call grace. And before we're done here today, I hope to explain to you why both of those things are true, and more importantly, why both of those things still matter for us today. Let's begin with the first point, appropriately enough, with these words. Jesus takes a popular assumption and a common expectation, and he turns it upside down. And he makes it very clear in doing so that his is a ministry that's going to disrupt what we have come to expect. What was that prevailing assumption? Simply put it is this, in that day and time there was a common expectation and a common belief that there was a direct connection between the circumstances of your life and God's favor over you. Let me explain what I mean by that. We'll put it very simply. If you were healthy and wealthy, it meant that God was pleased with you And if you were sick or poor, it meant God was angry at you. It was really what people used to make sense out of the mysteries of human suffering. And to be fair, there are plenty of verses in the Bible that if you take them in isolation could lead you to that conclusion. So it wasn't a completely crazy idea. And the Bible does make it clear that that God is a God who punishes and a God who rewards And so it's not completely wrong to say that that there may sometimes be a connection between blessings and behavior. But the problem was people took that way of thinking and they carried it beyond its logical conclusion. And so it became an overly simplistic way of explaining away suffering and sorrow. It was a way of pushing aside any mystery associated with the reality of suffering by giving it a simple answer that really doesn't hold true to the fullness of the biblical witness. There are plenty of other places in Scripture that challenge that way of thinking. Think, for example, about the book of Job. This is the tension that makes the story work. Job was a good man, truly a good man, and yet he suffered. And what did Job's friends say when they came to comfort him? They essentially said, okay, Job, just tell us what you did. Just fess up. Get honest before God, tell him your sins, and he'll forgive you, and then he'll bless you. But the whole point of the story is that Job hadn't done anything wrong, at least not relatively speaking. But nobody challenged that popular way of thinking and did so more forcefully in Jesus and he is doing it right out of the chute the very first words out of his mouth are taking that common way of thinking and flipping it upside down these words that we've read are traditionally called the beatitudes and you will notice that they are pronouncements of God's blessings blessed are you blessed are you blessed are you but he is pronouncing blessings on the wrong kind of people You see if the popular way of thinking was correct if everybody's expectations was accurate here's what you might expect jesus to say you might expect him to say something like blessed are you who are spiritually mature because you have accomplished great things for god you might expect jesus to say something like Blessed are you whose lives are filled with laughter and joy because clearly God's favor rests upon you. We might expect Jesus to say, blessed are you who are powerful and influential because you know how to get things done in this world. We might expect Jesus to say, blessed are you who enjoy popular support because your reputation has earned you the respect you rightfully deserve. That's what we would expect Jesus to say if he came into the world to only affirm what everybody already believed. But that's not what he does. In fact, he does right the opposite. He says... Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. We'll say more about that in a moment, but essentially that means blessed are you who are spiritually confused and lost. He says, blessed are you who mourn. That means he's announcing God's favor on people who suffer. He says, blessed are the meek. That means he's blessing people who don't know how to throw their weight around and use their influence to get what they want or need out of life he says blessed are you who are persecuted that means he's announcing god's favor on people who have suffered in the name of love and truth and so with the very first words out of his mouth Far beyond anybody's expectations, and contrary to everybody's assumptions, Jesus is blessing the down and the out. He's not pronouncing God's favor on the rich and the successful, but on the beat down and the pushed around. We can't stress enough that these are the very first words that Jesus says. His leading message, the thing he uses to capture people's attention are words that identify with and show favor to the very kinds of people that popular culture said were not favored by God and were the opposite of blessed. That means that right here at the very beginning, Jesus is inviting those kinds of people into his movement. That sets us up for the second point which is that with these words, Jesus is laying the foundation. And it's not just a foundation for the rest of the sermon, though it certainly is that. It is rather the foundation for his entire ministry. Everything Jesus says and everything Jesus does is going to be all about grace. Now, in order to explain that, I should point out to you that there is some disagreement among scholars. It's it's not a heated argument, but just, just differing ways, differing nuances of how to interpret these verses. What exactly do these Beatitudes mean? And the question that's often in debate is this, are the Beatitudes to be interpreted as a call to moral action? In other words, when Jesus speaks these words, is he asking us to go out and do certain things or be a certain way so that we can therefore receive God's favor and blessing as a result of the actions that we have taken? In other words, is Jesus telling us that we are supposed to go out there and be poor in spirit? Is Jesus telling us that our goal in life should be to go out there and mourn? Is he telling us that our purpose should be to seek out persecution and suffering? And that if we do these things, God will bless us, God will look upon us with favor? Well, in honesty, there are certain parts of these Beatitudes that could be interpreted that way. For example, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, even if you're not familiar with biblical vocabulary, I think most of us would just sort of intuitively get it. That, yeah, that's a a good thing to do. We all ought to seek out righteousness. So, yeah, let's do that. Likewise, we can all understand why it might be good to go out and be peacemakers why God would be pleased with us if we did. And and so, yes, there are some elements of the Beatitudes that do seem to push us towards action, towards promoting certain kinds of virtues in our lives. But there are other parts of these Beatitudes that don't fit that interpretation, where it doesn't make sense to say that. Let's go back, for example, to the first one. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what does that mean? Well, some people have tempted to say that, that what he's really saying here is blessed are the humble. So, so go out there and be humble. There's only one problem. If Jesus wanted to say blessed are the humble, he would just would have said blessed are the humble. But he didn't say that. He said blessed are the poor in spirit, which is a different thing. Now, we don't want to get too technical about this, but essentially to be poor in spirit means to acknowledge that you are in a state of spiritual confusion. To be poor in spirit is to be in a state of spiritual powerlessness. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge you can't make heads or tails out of the spiritual realities that are defining your life. And I think we would all agree that all else being equal, that's not a good state to be in. And nothing else that Jesus says anywhere else would lead us to think that he wants us to go out there and be poor in spirit. He is not telling us that this is a state we should desire for ourselves. And yet Jesus blesses those who find themselves in that state anyway. Similarly, Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn. I think it would take personally I think it would take a pretty twisted view of God to think that he wants us to go out and look for opportunities to be sad as though that is the preferred way of living in the world as though God is waiting to see just how miserable we can make ourselves so that therefore he can bless us in response in the same way. Jesus does not, I think, want us to go out and look for opportunities to be persecuted as though making martyrs out of ourselves somehow proves our spiritual worthiness. Those words are not calls to action. They're not invitations to go out and do anything. What those words are instead is an acknowledgement. That these are the kinds of circumstances in which some people find themselves. For an entire host of reasons, there are those who find themselves poor in spirit. And there are those who find themselves in a state of mourning. And there are those who are persecuted. These are simply the kinds of negative events that sometimes are going to come our way because of the fact that we live in a fallen world. And yet, notice this. Here is Jesus pronouncing God's blessings even on people who find themselves in those conditions. Why? Because of grace. And so I do not think that first and foremost we are to interpret the attitudes as a call to moral action. Now, don't mishear what I just said. There are moral implications that we take away from these verses, and that's great. And so if, after reading these words, we feel inspired to go out and make more effort to be peacemakers in our world, I think we would all agree that's a good thing. I highly recommend it. Or if we read these words and and feel a recognition and and an inspiration to pursue and, and, and seek righteousness in a greater way, that's a great thing. But first and foremost, these words are not meant as a call for us to go out and do something or accomplish something so that we can put ourselves in a position to be worthy of God's grace. Far from it. These words are a pronouncement of God's grace and favor upon us regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. God's favor can now rest upon anyone because of Jesus' ministry, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether the events of our lives appear favorable or not, regardless of whether or not the condition of our spirits and our bodies lines up with what the world says is blessed or not, because of Jesus, we nevertheless can be blessed. Because God's blessing is not a result of our ability to go out there and do something. It does not rest upon our ability to make life turn out right or to pull things all together. Jesus is simply making God's blessings available to anybody who will receive them. Wherever you are, however you are, you can enter into the kingdom of God and know his blessings right here and right now. To drive that point home a little bit further, let me ask you to stop and consider for a moment who was in the audience that day when Jesus first delivered the sermon. Who was listening to him? Matthew 5 verse 1 says Jesus began to teach when he saw the crowds. Who was in the crowd? Well, if we back up a few verses, we get an answer to that at the end of Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew 4 chapter 20, uh, verse 23... We read that Jesus went throughout Galilee. Now, to put that in context, Galilee is a rural backwater area referring to the region around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, a place that even still today is kind of out of the beaten path, not a part of the cosmopolitan crossroads of the world, just a place where everyday, ordinary, rural people live. And it says he went about Galilee, moving in and through all those various villages, teaching and preaching and healing. And The next verse, verse 24, tells us what the people's response to that was. It says that as the word about him spread, people began bringing others to him. Particularly, it says this, it brought with them people who were suffering from various diseases, people who suffered from pain people who were demon-possessed, people who had seizures, people who were paralyzed. And so by the time we get to Matthew 4, verse 25, we have this picture of Jesus surrounded by a crowd that consists primarily of people who were beaten up, broken down, and pushed around. These are not the who's who of Israel society. These are not the VIPs. These are the people that everybody else has pushed aside and rejected. Because remember what we said was the common assumption of the day? If you were poor or sick, it meant God was angry at you. Well, guess who Jesus is speaking to? The very crowds that popular culture said God is angry with. Those are the kinds of people Jesus addresses when he begins the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Beatitudes are not random statements about hypothetical people as though there's some chance somewhere out there there might be somebody who's poor in spirit. It's way more specific than that. We can almost imagine Jesus pointing to people and saying, blessed are you, and blessed are you, and yeah, I see you up there. Blessed are you, and blessed are you, and yeah, I know you're sick, and I know you're hurting, and I know you're disabled, and I know you've been rejected, and I know you're poor, and I know you're hungry, and guess what? Blessed are you, and blessed are you, and blessed are you. He's pronouncing God's blessings upon very specific people, people whose circumstances from the outside looking in to be anything but blessed and nevertheless here is jesus saying god is with you and god is with you and god is for you and god is for you and yeah there you god is for you too god is ready to save you no matter the conditions of your life this is the very meaning of grace The simplest definition of grace I know is this. Grace is undeserved favor. Hear that again. Let that sink in. Grace is undeserved favor. And because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, because of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, that undeserved favor is now available to anybody who will receive it, regardless of circumstances, regardless of events. And this is the message with which Jesus begins his ministry. The first words out of his mouth, the thing he says that he wants to focus on, the first thing he wants to grab our attentions is this pronouncement of grace. And that is the message that will pervade everything Jesus will say and do, not just in the next three chapters of Matthew's gospel, but throughout his ministry. A few years later. Writing to a group of early believers in Rome, the Apostle Paul would put it this way. He writes, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And let me just unpack that for a moment. Apart from the law, it's referring to the Old Testament law, the law by which God's people in the Old Testament were expected to live as a demonstration of righteousness. The idea was, do this, keep these rules, live this way, and you will be righteous, and God will look upon you with favor. That's the way Paul had been raised to think about himself, that God's blessing upon him was the result of him first demonstrating a life of righteousness, and righteousness was demonstrated by living according to the law. But now Paul has realized, because of his encounter with Jesus, that Jesus has flipped that upside down. So hear it again, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Hear that again. All have been justified, how? Freely, because of Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is grace. That is the point Jesus leads with, it is the point Jesus ends with, and it is the point of everything he does in between. That God's blessing and God's favor and God's mercy now rest upon anybody who receives it, apart from what we do and apart from how life is treating us at any given moment. Now I said to you at the beginning that I wanted to explain why those two points worked, why, why this grabbed our attention and why it set the foundation for everything that's going to happen later, but, but I also said we want to try to unpack why this is still relevant to us today let me see if i can accomplish that i want to suggest to you this morning that there are at least two kinds of people here today and i know you hate it when you get squeezed into one or two boxes there there are at least two kinds of people those who like being squeezed into two kinds of people and those who don't but that's another story at least two kinds of people here today There are some among us here today who overall I would suggest and imagine are feeling pretty good about where life is for them right now. Maybe your plans have worked out pretty close to how you thought they were. Maybe you are making good progress towards meeting some important goals that you've set for yourself. Maybe you feel like your health is in pretty good shape or that the key relationships in your life are intact. Maybe your 401k is moving in positive direction and the economy is working in your favor. Maybe you feel pretty squared away in terms of your place and your role in your family Or in the larger community, whatever the circumstances may be, as you look around the horizons of your life right now, you have to say, overall, you're feeling pretty good. And then if that is you, hear me say this, there is nothing to be ashamed of about that. These beatitudes that Jesus speaks do not mean that you have to go out there and now make yourself miserable in spite of the positive circumstances of your life in order to prove that you're worthy of God's favor. That's not what Jesus is asking us to do. He's not asking you to go out and mourn or to be persecuted. Remember, these are pronouncements of blessings regardless of circumstances. And if you feel pretty good about how life is treating you right now, then the good news is that God's favor rests upon you as much as it does anybody else. But in that bit of good news is also a bit of warning. Because in the end, true life It's all about grace and nothing but grace. And the moment we start to think that we are spiritually self-sufficient is the moment we lose sight of the gospel. Because it doesn't matter how successful we are in any particular arena of life. The simple truth is none of us has the ability within ourselves to move ourselves one inch closer to being acceptable before God because it has nothing to do with us. And that is why Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for the religiously accomplished people of his day. They were haughty and they were arrogant and they were unwilling to acknowledge their utter dependence upon God's mercy. So these beatitudes ought to stand as a clear warning that God's favor has nothing to do with what we accomplish in life. It is grace all the way down. On the other hand, I'm going to suggest that there are people here today who do not think for one second that you have life altogether. I'm speaking of those who know that life is somehow a mess right now and that no matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to get control of the situation, whether it's your health, your finances, or your relationships, or your careers, or your family, or, or any other arena of life, things just aren't coming together. that describes any of us, and I'm going to imagine that in some small way, at least, it describes almost all of us, then I want you to hear this good news. God's favor rests upon you, right here, right now, now, that doesn't mean there aren't practical steps that we can take to improve our circumstances in any of those areas. The Bible is filled with lessons, godly lessons, and how to confront those challenges and, and make some headway in them. And it certainly doesn't mean that, that God wants us to just stay in that difficult spot without any improvements. Remember at the end of Matthew 4, all those sick people that came to Jesus, it says Jesus healed them. He didn't leave them in that state. He, he moved them to a new place. it does mean this god's favor is not conditioned upon our ability to go out and get life cleaned up and pull our act together surrounded by the broken and bruised people of his day jesus looked at them with penetrating love and he said blessed are you and blessed are you and blessed are you May that be so for all of us. Let's pray together. Father God, we want so badly to think that it has something to do with us. Somehow our hand had a part in moving us where we need to be in our relationship with you we confess our pride and our stubbornness and our refusal to accept the free gift that you give. And yet we thank you that you are here offering that gift to us anyway. And so my prayer, O God, is that you would come and pronounce those very blessings upon each one of us today. For those who right now feel far from you because of choices they've made or circumstances that have been hoisted upon them, show them again that your favor is upon them. For those who on the other end of the spectrum who have led themselves to believe that they don't need that favor because, well, they've got it all together, show them again that your favor rests upon them. And may all of us acknowledge our gratitude in the simple reality of your blessing. pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. God's favor is right here. You don't have to go somewhere else first. You don't have to go solve some other problem first. You don't have to climb some faraway mountain. You simply have to open yourself to it. God's grace, God's mercy, God's favor is here. If you've never acknowledged that and received that, then, then the first step is to acknowledge it, to ask God to bless you, to invite Jesus as your Lord and Savior and to acknowledge your need of a Messiah. If that's where you are this morning, then in just a moment while we're singing, I want to invite you to come forward. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to make a big deal out of this. We're simply going to pray with you and then get you connected to, to people and processes that can help you begin that journey of faith. You may be at a different place maybe you've taken that step but you know you're not really connected to the church the way you need to be you're not a part of that disciple making body where together we're all learning what it means to live under the banner of god's grace if that's where you are we want to receive you if there's anything else you need to make public or just unburden yourself with a brother in christ i'll be here and would love to share a moment with you while we sing but but whether it happens here in view of everybody or right there in the privacy of your own soul Let this be a moment when we commune with God in which we open ourselves to his blessings, acknowledge our need for them, and receive the gift that only he can give. Let's stand and worship him together.